Okay, uh, welcome uh, to this special uh, MDISC seminar. Uh, we're uh, hot racking in this room today. We had a political science uh, job talk that went from 3 to 4.30, uh, and now we've got this event. So uh, thank you all for your uh, patience. Um, my name is Mike Desch. I'm the director of the Notre Dame International Security Program. I want to take care of two administrative things uh, before uh, I introduce the uh, distinguished delegation from the U.S. Army War College. First of all, we have a seating chart. We're taking attendance because we grade people on attendance. Uh, if you would just put your name down, because I like to recognize people by name, in part as a matter of courtesy, but in part if they say something that really ticks me off, then I can wreak vengeance <laughs> later, so uh, I find that uh, helpful. Secondly, um, if you want to get on the uh, MDISC, Notre Dame International Security Center uh, email listserv, Please put your email address uh, here if you're not uh, already uh, on the, uh, the MDISC list. And then finally, uh, if you're not on the list but you want to see uh, what other events uh, MDISC is uh, supporting over the course of the spring semester, uh, I'm passing around a, uh, a sheet uh, with our uh, various events. So, without further ado, uh, it's my great pleasure uh, to uh, welcome the National Security Strategy uh, Seminar Group, uh, the Carlisle, uh, Carlisle Scholars, um, and uh, they're made up of uh, uh, Colonel Franklin uh, Gomez uh, from the uh, Army uh, of Colombia, uh, Brigadier Rakesh Kapoor uh, from the uh, Indian Army, uh, Colonel Michael Birmingham uh, from the U.S. Army, um, and Lieutenant Colonel Greg and Anika and I have been going back and forth on the pronunciation of this. Ben Vertlo? Yes, sir. Okay. You're, you're just going to be polite and, uh, uh, and, uh, and say I got it uh, basically right. Um, and uh, they're uh, coming through. They're all uh, in-residence students. Uh, at the uh, U.S. Army War College. Uh, we're really uh, thrilled to have you here. We're thrilled to have you here, not only uh, because of the topic of their brief this afternoon, which is a, uh, uh, a series of recommendations uh, for the next president, which we now know is President Trump, uh, for his national security strategy, which is the defining foreign policy document uh, of uh, each administration. Um, but in addition to all that, uh, Notre Dame also uh, has uh, uh, War College uh, officers uh, here. Uh, we have uh, Colonel Jay Hopkins and uh, Colonel Doug Walter, uh, who are doing their uh, War College out of residence uh, rather than uh, in residence. So uh, we're absolutely thrilled not only to have them here uh, as part of the War College experience, but uh, also uh, to welcome uh, you fellas here as well. So please join me in giving a warm Notre Dame welcome to the Carlisle Scholars. Okay, hey, thanks for everybody coming out tonight. It's a really, really uh, good showing. Hopefully, we'll have a, we'll make it a valuable evening for you. Evening for you, we'll have some good discussion. 
Um, so let me try to get an understanding of the room first. If you're an undergrad, raise your hand. Okay, if you're an undergrad in ROTC, raise your hand. Okay, oh. how many of you were forced to be here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, smart move there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, graduate students? Graduate couple? And then faculty? Okay. We'll try. We'll try not to bore you. Okay. Of the ROTC students, how many of you have had a an international relations course or political science course? Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll try to we'll try then to, to dial this to the room. Um, so let me first explain. So first, I'm going to go over sort of what the War College is, so everybody kind of understands who we are and, and what we're doing here, and then we'll 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 have a brief discussion. Um, we've done some work on national security strategies, some recommendations. We've been going around, I think we've been to seven or eight universities now to, to sort of discuss them. We've also been to a lot of the think tanks in, in D.C. We've been to Heritage Foundation, Brookings. We're going to uh, Center for New American Security this week, uh, Third Way also, I think, this week. Uh, so we're sort of spreading it wide, having a, having a sort of broad discussion about views of what the ne next national security strategy should look like. Uh, what we're going to talk about is probably very divergent from what will actually come out of the White House. <laughs> so... Um, but we've had have had some interest um, in sort of some of the ideas in there, mainly more from academia than from, from DC. Um, so what I need to know first is what I want to do is try to have this more discussion. Uh, let you guys ask questions. And oh, by the way, when we get to the discussion thing, you're not limited to what we talk about. Any good question you guys have is, is free and fair game for anybody up here, the international fellow or us. We're happy to entertain any questions. I don't feel like you got to talk about just the, the stuff that we present. It's just sort of a starting place for, for national security. So, who's a freshman? Okay, guess what? We're going to try and talk each person for less than five minutes. Okay? So, you're timekeeper. So, once I hit five minutes after I start talking about, na after I start talking about national security, when I hit five minutes, I need you to start waving your arm around and getting you to shut up. All right. Because we want to try to rapidly move to, to the question. Okay? After I talk, after, when I start talking about national security. So, the first thing is uh, the, the war college. So every branch of service has a war college. Uh, every branch of service is significantly invested in professional military education. It starts off at the basic level when, when you're in ROTC and then advances through your career with each level. So, for example, you'll generally if you're in Army, you'll go to a career course at about the tactical level. Uh, when you become a major, you go to Command and General Staff College. That's sort of where you learn about the operational level of warfare. And then after about 20 years, once you get sort of where they think you're going to make colonel and you're going to be a senior leader in the military, that's when you go to the War College, if you're lucky, and you get to sort of study the strategic level of warfare, how that integrates with politics, our civilian overseers, and, and things like that. Um, it's a, it's a degree-accredited institution. It's a master's degree program. Um, each, everything is taught in small group seminars throughout, through, the, through the year. So you, in each small group, you've got about 17 people. One person from every service, so it's joint. You've got a Navy and an Air Force guy in each thing. We've even got one Coastie in the class. And then you have generally three international fellows. So we've got Brigadier Rapport, Colonel, uh, Colonel Gomez, and uh, we also have a Jamaican colonel uh, in our small group. We've got 79 different countries represented at the Army War College. Uh, and that's, that's a key part of the interchange between our Army and, uh, and so our foreign partners. So... Uh, the Carlisle Scholars Program itself is a, is a separate program of one seminar that focuses mainly on publication and trying to get dialogue and interaction outside of the military. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we sort of wrote the document and then used that as a vehicle to come out to think tanks and universities just to have a discussion and to get the military talking with the civilian 
civilian academic institutions and, and think tanks. So that there is a dialogue and interchange between the professional military and the, and the civilian uh, institutions. Okay? Any questions on the War College before we go on? Everybody up here has got about 20 years in. We've got a really broad... You guys seen the bios? Okay, you've got a really broad array of, of experiences here, from everything from working with weapons of mass destruction and, and medical care to, to um, frankly, commanded a, a brigade uh, fighting the FARC in uh, Colombia. So a lot of, lot of interesting uh, things you can talk about. All right, you ready to keep the time? Ready. Five minutes per. Okay, I'll try to work through this and get to your questions. Okay, so go. We had started looking at um, national security. We took the entire group down and we thought, okay, what are the implications of the world, how it will be in the future, how do we craft a strategy that helps the U.S. government meet, get the, its ends, ways, and means together so that we can achieve our national interests. Um, we started really from a premise that we believe the world is trending towards a multipolar world. You have, um, sort of after the fall, during the Cold War you had a bipolar world, which is generally a stable order, you've got two, two poles, two superpowers. Fall of the wall, you had kind of a unipolar moment, unipolar world. You've got one superpower. A lot of people refer to it as sort of like the hegemonic moment. Um, and we believe as, as, as China grows, as India grows, as you've got a resurgent Russia, the next 30 years, we're, we're heading towards a world that's multipolar. In the past, that multipolar world has been seen as a less stable order just because there's more pieces. And in the past, generally, it was managed through balance of power. Now, we'd like to have a world where there's competition that does not necessarily equal confrontation. Something that has a stable world order where we avoid things like World War II. Um, so what we looked at is we, we saw that for the last 70 years, the, the U.S. has worked very hard building up regimes and institutions that are built to manage that stress and competition and to avoid, avoid confrontation. Um, that increase the stability in the world, decrease the risk, increase dialogue, and also, would, and also, frankly, have encouraged the acceptance of our values across the world. Um, sometimes not successfully, sometimes not kind of forcefully. But we've tried, we've tried to do that over the times. If you look at the UN values, they're very close to what we espouse as a nation. Um, so we kind of wanted to say, why, why should the U.S. have put in 70 years of work doing that and then just simply abandon those issues? So as we become more multipolar, we looked at something uh, really called, because um, we, we feel that's been largely successful, um, and there's a lot of forces now pushing against those institutions, both internal to the U.S., you see it in Europe, and you see, frankly, a lot of uh, work in Russia and China pushing against those re regimes, international norms, and institutions that have been created over, over the years. Um, we see that as a sort of a bad trend. And so we believe the U.S. should work with something that's called uh, collaborative leadership um, that aims to create, a, evolve the current order into a mutually beneficial order, uh, where all nations sort of uh, gain out of it. So what, how, how do you do that? It's really a stylistic change. Um, so at first, you, you've got to basically look at the forces that are working against the international regimes, institutions, and norms that we have today. Try to co-opt those forces that are working against them, or could work against them, to come into that mutually beneficial order in a tighter manner, both in leadership and in sort of absorbing the costs of those things. So a move like that would be, recently China's been given, a, a you know, I, th I think the deputy director, the deputy president or director of the World Bank. So that's a good move because China now with its larger uh, economy is deserving of a position like that. When they get a position like that, they have more say, but then they also have more buy-in 
to the World Bank to do things that are good, that are mutually beneficial to all of us, and they're invested in the world order that we have. So it's really getting nations, nations to, to do that. Um, displaying that, the mutual benefits of that order to all nations, not just the, the great powers. Uh, and then also getting everyone to serve. You, you share some authority in that. It's not done by U.S. diktat, but then you also, if you want shared authority, there's shared responsibility and costs. So it's also working through collaborative leading to try and eliminate a certain level of free ridership, ridership that exists, as you see in sort of NATO with defense spending and um, countries like China, who frankly get a lot about this, get a lot from the security and the international order that the U.S. provides. They get a lot economically from that, but don't really pay a lot for sort of access to global commons. Um, and it's a way to then move forward towards looking at new areas of threat and friction that can exist in order in, in the world, develop new regimes in areas like cyber warfare, artificial intelligence, um, sort of develop those. Um, anyway, to, to be clear, that's not institutionalist only. We include when we talk about regimes, norms, um, and informal institutions also. Um, one of the key pieces is to recognize it's not an appeasement kind of policy, that there's a very kind of hard edge to this, where you do confront nations that refuse to follow and fall in line with the espoused norms, institutions, regimes that we have, the standards that we're trying to develop. But you do that in a manner where there's a door open for them to come in and be co-opted so that they have a share and a say in it. Um, by encouraging dialogue, action, um, to do that, however, the U.S. frankly has to moderate some of its own behavior. We try to take American exceptionalism to an extreme. It's tough to co-op. Okay, there we go. It's tough to co-op other nations into an order if the U.S. is seen as the only one directing and the only one who is allowed to accept itself in that order. So things like UNCLOS, uh, the current law of the CN conventions, we suggest that we should probably sign that so we actually can have a say in it uh, rather than just preaching about it. Um, yeah, and then sort of work with institutional, uh, regional, inst regional uh, regimes to uh, manage some of the risk of fragile states uh, in other areas. So, with that being said, I'm at probably six minutes. I'll pass it to Lieutenant Colonel V. Okay, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, folks, it's great to be here. Thanks, uh, thanks very much for having us. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the, the primary issues. Can everyone hear me okay in the back? No? Good. Um, primarily what we're concerned with the primary issues to our central security, the United States central security, and the security of our allies is uh, those things that threaten uh, our, our security, our way of life. And as, as a military, that's, that's kind of our job, is, is to protect the homeland. Um, what we see immediately uh, being a threat to the, the, uh, the security of the United States of course, is is uh, it's a is a unilateral approach. Uh, we see threats coming from all all different uh, directions. Uh, multipolar world. Uh, Colonel Colonel Birmingham mentioned the multipolar world. And what we're basically concerned with is where are these threats coming from, and where will they come from? So we're concerned not only with the now but also the future. Uh, so envisioning the the future as we can, uh, we look at it from the standpoint of. People moving from place to place, immigrants, folks leaving their country, uh, displaced individuals, refugees. A good example: Syrian refugees in Turkey. There's 2.4 million refugees in uh, in Turkey, and uh, what's going to happen to them? We don't know. You're probably wondering, well, how does that affect United States security? Well, anytime you have a, a, 
refugee situation, you have a situation where there are no jobs available, they're not working. And that's a prime situation uh, that is up for grabs for terrorist organizations to go in and recruit. And they add to their, their, their ranks, so to speak, they add to their group. And, and that could threaten us as, as a country, not only here, but abroad. And it could also threaten our allies. So we're concerned about that. Uh, but here and now, of course, we want to do more collaborations. We want, um, we want other countries to do more regional collaborations. We want regional control. A good example of this is the, uh, the Caribbean uh, catastrophic risk insurance facility. Uh, down in the Caribbean, other countries have gotten together uh, in the interest of homeland security and they have uh, created this, this fund, uh, which they use in case of a natural emergency or international emergency, something that they can utilize to help after uh, a, uh, a disaster of some sort, whether it be a weapons of mass destruction, whether it be something natural that occurs, what be it may, they will utilize this fund to go ahead and help them. Uh, Jamaica, for example, Colonel, uh, Colonel Ogilvy was just telling me the other day that they had a situation uh, just recently uh, with a hurricane. And what they did is they, they delved into this fund a little bit to help with uh, infrastructure improvement and uh, building their, themselves back up. So that helps them, and, and that's, that's a great thing. So other regional powers can also utilize uh, that particular uh, type of uh, an instrument uh, to help instead of having the United States come in and, and um, we're, we're, we really, uh, I won't say we really shouldn't, but um, instead of relying on us to do everything that, that the regional powers really should be doing. Um, also talk a little bit about um, uh, promoting viable technology, agricultural leadership. Um, interesting case in point there is the United States imported or exported um, more than its fair share last year of agricultural exports. And where that comes into a security realm is other countries look at us doing that and they say, wait a minute, we can do that too. So we have our ex expertise, our agricultural expertise that we can export. And of course that presents a security issue as well. And uh, how am I doing on time? You have uh, one more minute. One more minute, okay. So to summarize, uh, we, we have a say in, in what happens um, on, on foreign soils from the standpoint of where it comes into play of national security. And we want to help our allies, but at the same time, we won't want uh, those allies to depend too much on what we have to offer. And with that, I'll, I'll turn things over to, uh, to, to Brigadier Kapoor. Uh, thank you, Greg. And uh, firstly, thank you very much for having us over. And it's uh, wonderful to see such young and bright faces. You know, it's really motivating to see that. And it takes me back many years back, you know, when possibly I was as young as you people are. Uh, I'll just uh, take a thread from what Greg was talking about and what Mike spoke about, a collaborative leadership, because soon the unipolar movement is moving away. So it is for the United States to recognize that there is a multipolar world and shape the environment so that it benefits them in the overall international scenario. And part of this uh, national security project uh, I'm going to cover certain specific issues, you know, certain recommendations that we are making to the new administration so that this collaborative leadership can be fostered and realized. Uh, Mike talked about uh, the on clause, the United Nations laws of the sea. You know, you, the United States has to now decide to become a signatory of it. 
the Congress must ratify that treaty. Only then can you, you know, have moral authority over the rest of the world to say, okay, we go by this. Like the laws of the sea, similarly cyberspace. Today, cyber influences everything in our lives. Economy, health, social networking, anything that you do. I'm quite sure all of you in your pockets have a cyber equipment in your don't you all have it? So even those conventions have to be moderated. You need to have a code of conduct. Uh, the current United Nations group of experts, which has met with Russia, China, UK, Germany, France, certain a code of conduct must emerge. And this is a place with the, with the advantage of technology and the advantage of experience that the United States can help out in Establishing certain norms, identifying what are the threats, and even, you know, attributing places. The biggest problem of cyber is attributability. Let's have a code of conduct where we can seek attributability, ascribe attributability. So this is one place where the United States can, you know, exercise its leadership in a collaborative manner. The next area is space. Space is a common, as all of you would agree. And with advances in spacefaring nations, the accessibility to space has improved. As many as 40 nations today are uh, exploiting the space, over 18,000 pieces are orbiting the space. And space is one attribute uh, that once it is polluted, it's very difficult to reverse it back. So don't you all think that we need to have a code of conduct? The Treaties like the PAROs, that the prevention of arms race, or prevention of placement of weapons in space, are not sufficing. While Russia and China may today be getting closer as for space attributes are concerned, the United, United States is the leading space-faring nation in this world. It needs to exercise its leadership through a collaborative, through collaborative partnership with other space-faring nations to establish a code of conduct. We need to define what is space first. We need to define what is outer space. We need to define what is what are soft-killed weapons, what are anti-satellite weapons. And if we do that in a collaborative manner and come up with a code of conduct, we would be able to use space for our subsequent generations. The next area where collaborative leadership can be exercised is artificial intelligence. You know, artificial intelligence is another revolution in technology or revolution in warfare. First, you got the gunpowder, which revolutionized the way warfare is going to be fought. Then you had nuclear weapons, which revolutionized how warfare is going to be fought. And now, you have artificial intelligence. So we need to have a method which is transparent, <clears throat> which what is, who is... Uh, you know, developing what kind of weapon, because there's a great deal of asymmetry in artificial intelligence. So we need to establish a similar code of conduct or a kind of a treaty as to what is the threshold of artificial intelligence. I'm not going to go into technicalities of artificial intelligence. And the next area, and most importantly, is weapons of mass destruction. You know, post the Cold War, we've had a relatively peaceful time because responsible nations and responsible treaties have matured over the time. The NPT has matured. 
But yet you have certain belligerent nations like North Korea. There is opportunity here to, uh, you know, collaborate with China to get it within controllable regimes. There's also, the way we've gone around with Iran, a similar method could be established to uh, bring greater tangibility to the start and get to the weapons levels that we are talking uh, to be achieved by February 2018. So these are all areas where collaborative leadership can be exercised. Therefore, and where, you know, an international order which has been established by the, by the United States, if it involves other emerging nations, there would be greater acceptability to all these treaties and norms. With this, I hand you over to uh, Colonel Franklin Gomez. Okay, thank you, sir. Uh, thank you very much for having us here. Uh, I'm also very proud to share with you this time in such a prestigious university. And one of the roles that we picked in our judgment is for U.S. is uh, uh, the promotion of international peace and stability. And in those recommendations, I would, I would like to stress two of them. It's the encouragement of regional solutions to solve the governance and rule of law uh, for the issues that create fragile states. And the other is the diversified employment of non-military instruments of power to confront malign non-state actors. So, uh, you know, fragile states, uh, for probably uh, some of you, uh, is one uh, that it isn't able to meet its uh, population expectations and capacities through the uh, political process. So, uh, fragile states is a source of much global disorder, regional instability, uh, in that way that could uh, harm the U.S. national vital interests. So, um, we know United States have now limited influence. Why? Because there are, there are a lot of constraints in budgeting, uh, and resources, and probably some uh, uh, political willingness sometimes to, to collaborate. And, and we have fragile states as a challenge in, in every part of the world. For example, you know, in the Middle East, uh, countries like Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, and Africa, Chad, uh, Nigeria, Cameroon, Somalia, all of those. And it's Asia and Korea, as you mentioned, uh, in the Caribbean, Haiti, in South America, even Venezuela, my neighbor country, is now uh, creating conditions to fragility. So it's very uh, important to us address the, in the best way this, uh, this issue. Uh, so um, the causes of fragility, you know, are highly contextual. And in that, uh, in that uh, sense, we know this uh, type of regional problems require regional solution. And, and that's why we recommend the U.S. make the better use of all kinds of regional institutions international organizations that share the values, of course, and, and, and share this uh, mutual interest, of course, seeking the, the mutual benefit. So, um, usually uh, these uh, problems in fragile states go beyond the borders. So, uh, United States must try to prevent this happen, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And sometimes uh, uh, more of this uh, problem stems from poor governance 
uh, and the popular grievances of the government galvanized the very extremist organization and terrorism to take advantage of this uh, the development, uh, the poverty, and bad practices in the governments like corruption and all those kind of things uh, try to impose their their interests and of course displace the, the government uh, legitimacy. Uh, the international institutional roles here play, as I said before, a key uh, role. So the United States in this collaborative leadership needs to try to engage these institutions and try to uh, implement in a very uh, planned uh, way all kind of solutions for this but not in a in a in a in a in not in the common way as usual. I think has been done before. For example, uh, usually these kind of problems have a, a kind of reactive decisions, uh, and this is wrong. Really, early action doesn't mean uh, improvised actions. So in this uh, war, uh, this uh, time of constraints, it's very. Uh, important to have a very uh, planned actions to solve these kind of issues. Uh, of course, there must be priorities uh, in order to make this project sustainable. Of course, at the end uh, of the day, uh, the solution is to strengthen the state and society relationships. Uh, people in fragile states demand trusted government, the corruption, lockdown, and uh, of course, provide effective basic services that all the kinds of uh, uh, solutions that give the government's legitimacy. And of course, the last point is the military is not always the best way to address these problems. Uh, indeed, the military must be uh, used as a last resort, probably. Sometimes uh, the economic and diplomatic the diplomacy is much better to address this kind of problems, and in that way, uh, preventing the deterioration of fragile states and preventing the, the non-state uh, actors gaining regional prominence. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. And one thing I should have said at the beginning is that uh, all the opinions expressed up here today do not represent U.S. government policy, U.S. government, or the, the policy of the United States Army War College. They're individual opinions only. Okay? Okay. So it's just, just had to cover myself. With, 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 <laughs> that, with that caveat, uh, Colonel, do you want me to manage the incoming fires, or do you, you just want to you know, take it from all directions. We'll just, we'll just see how it comes. Uh, if, you, if you'd like an answer from a specific person, just let us know. Or if you just want to put it out to the table, we'll look at each other and act stupid until somebody jumps on the, on the hand grenade. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, but feel free. Okay, the, uh, the floor is open. Uh, do we have a, an undergraduate that wants to go first? Because I recognize that <laughs> hand back there, and while she looks like an undergraduate, I'm reliably informed uh, that she's uh, uh, not. Going once, going twice. You have to stay here till six. Please. <laughs> uh, the United Nations Legal Committees and Security Council is usually criticized for condemning actions of other nations but having no way of backing it up. Do you? Do any of you believe that individual nations should support uh, the United Nations condemning actions by supplying soldiers, or do you agree that maybe the United Nations really isn't useful 
and condemning actions of Taylor. So, one of the, one of the problems is, so remember, the United Nations is, is the way that the um, Security Council structures to provide stability so that those five countries don't fight. <laughs> and so there's, there's sort of an odds between what we want to do for international peace and stability, but you're always going to have some, some level of, of instability and, and conflict. Um, one of the reasons why the uh, Security Council generally isn't able to do things is because of a really different understanding about the importance of state sovereignty versus when the United Nations can overstep that state sovereignty and go into things. So really the, the, the more important question of rather than the, the, the actual usage of that is a really long-term look at a discussion between, frankly, us and Russia, uh, because it's one of the key pieces of, of how they understand sovereignty um, and how they understand the threat when a country like NATO, a country like the U.S. or NATO uses the U.N. to what, do what they see as sort of overstepping that sovereignty. There have been examples, of, you know, a number of examples of when the Security Council will actually support action. Um, and one of the problems that's been developed over the time is sort of once you get that support, um, a good question that sort of goes along with that corollary of that discussion with Russia and China and ourselves is sort of when do resolutions run out? Because uh, that's been one of the long-term problems. So the, the Russians generally look at things like the Gulf War resolution. They see that as... That's old news from 1990. We see that as, oh, it, conti it continued into 2003, et cetera. And so there needs to be a, a dialogue about the expansion of that uh, because, uh, frankly, a lot of the problems that come from the structure of the UN really come from those battle of interests between those polar, those, those polar powers and the understanding of sovereignty and the threat that happens when you have a different view of sovereignty. So there's sort of a, a much bigger discussion that, that sort of goes on to that. The key piece really is you have to have a productive dialogue where people understand where the other nation is coming from, and then when there is a crisis, you already know sort of where the other pole stands so that you can figure out what you can do at that point. Because right now it's gotten to the point where Russia and China don't want the Western powers doing anything because they fear an overstep. You, you saw that in play with, with Libya. And then the, our actions in Libya sort of exacerbated that, that view. I think also the uh, structures within the United States, uh, within the United Nations, need a reform. Uh, they're really not today. The world has changed. These structures are old. And a certain amount of these structures, participation of certain nations has to improve. And everybody who has a hand in the pie must contribute towards it. And, you know, uh, and contribution of troops for some of these Actions, I think you're also alluding towards peacekeeping and, uh, you know, stabilizing operations in certain areas. Uh, participation has to be equal to. The, the UN actually has a marvelous military staff, very capable. I think there's an Indian brigadier yeah. that sits on it. It's a really outstanding body. One of their biggest problems of getting action is not other nations or even the, the, the great powers. It's <laughs> or the other consequential powers. It's the UN bureaucracy and the sec of the secretariat. Um, so there, there's a lot of internal things inside the UN bureaucracy itself that could facilitate a lot of action in the world without having to change structures at the Security Council level. But that's, that in itself is very tough to do if you've ever tried to change a bureaucracy, <laughs> especially an entrenched one that everybody yeah. has to vote on. Except for universities, which are quite agile <laughs> and, uh, and quite mobile. Um, Greg, did you want to get in on this uh, I just want to say your, your question is, is is it's a very good question actually, and it, it points to 
the bigger question of when do you pull the trigger? When do you use the military, right? I think you're thinking along the same lines. The, the, the sky's wide open. The military is used for so many things in every country. Humanitarian relief, peacekeeping forces, uh, the actual fighting of wars, conflicts. And, and the question remains, when should we use a military? And uh, that, that's a very good question. There's, there's no right answer. Okay, uh, I'm going to recognize my colleague, uh, Tanisha Fazal, uh, professor here, also a non-resident uh, or adjunct scholar at West Point's Modern War Institute. Tanisha? She left. She left? Oh, my goodness. All right, I guess we're not going to do that. <laughs> then uh, I guess we're going to uh, recognize uh, Carrie Lee. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for being here. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a postdoc here, and um, <coughs> hopefully uh, a, a future professor at the, Arm at the Air War College uh, at Maxwell starting in July. Um, How far are you through the, 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 the application process? Well, I mean, I'm, I've been hired. Um, well, that's good. That's but, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the hiring freeze is a little bit um, exciting. So, um, so I, I have a couple of questions. Um, the first is that this, the, the document and, and what you've discussed today um, seems to rely a lot on the cooperation of U.S. domestic institutions. Um, and particularly around treaty ratification, your proposals about integration of the IT sector, um, economic engagement, and you know, the energy policy of, of the United States. These all require um, full participation and approval by Congress and you know, domestic approval, essentially. Um, and yet, you guys don't really deal with that at all in, in the document. Um, have you guys thought about how um, the executive branch may communicate with the legislative branch in order to enact this kind of, this kind of national security strategy. Um, so that's that's my first question. And then my second is that um, this the document is is very optimistic about U.S. relations with China. Um, it seems predicated on a, a kind of symbiotic U.S. and China relationship, and I wonder how. How it changes if um, if we if it's revealed that China's intentions are not so benign. The um, look at the first one. Yeah, one of the one of the weaknesses of most of our skills is, and a long running weakness of the Department of Defense is our ability to talk to Congress. Um, so one of the things that we do recognize is sort of like, for example, UNCLOS, which which uh, Rakeshi mentioned. Um, every presidency, you know, back to. I mean, the time it was initially brought in, so I can't remember if it was Clinton or Bush one, um, has supported signing UNCLOS. We recognize almost everything in UNCLOS as, as standard international law by, you know, just by sort of existing uh, over time. We, we recognize it, we follow it. So it, it's kind of one of those, like, why haven't we ratified that? It's been in just about every national security strategy since the convention met. Um, I think one of the things to do would really be to, to there, there has to be sort of effort from the government. I mean, the, the, the executive branch can only focus on so many things in the White House. But there was a really great example recently that, that ties into China in that, um, so the Philippines went to The Hague to talk about the islands that are being built in, in the South China Sea. They took China to The Hague. 
about a couple specific ones. And the, the Hague came down and ruled based on UNCLOS that said the Philippines should have these islands. They're not Chinese land. China can't, can't build these <coughs> islands. China's chosen to ignore that. The U.S. wanted to go in and present information, data, and speak at that event at the Hague and was not allowed to because they're not, they're not signatories of the convention. And so when things like that happen where it's like, hey, you know, I, th I think really the administration has to be agile enough to sort of take advantage of that, uh, which is a very difficult, uh, tall task. Um, I think you have to really show the cost um, to Congress, not just in their uh, internationally, but, but at home, which is difficult to do with something like that in cost. Um, and frankly, we don't have any really, really good answers for, for some of those things. Um, in relation to China, I think there's, um, you know, the, the, I don't know if you want to talk about China after I do. So you've got a much better uh, take on China than we do. So, <laughs> so Ch China, I think there's, there are, if you look internationally, for both nations, there are more ways that we benefit from a strong relationship. Um, that does not mean that there will not be competition. Um, it's managing that competition and understanding that we will compete as nations. But managing it in a matter that does not break into open confrontation. We're not going to get rid of comp competition. But if you have regimes in place that diffuse the competition so that you end up not having war or conflict, or anything, I think there's a, that's sort of where we need to be. Uh, and that takes a lot of dialogue effort. And in many cases, if you look at it, we have a much better relationship with China than we do with Russia. Um, because frankly, a lot of things we do in the world, China feels less threatened about. We feel a lot. China's. Uh, a little bit more accepting of us in their literal region than the Russians are. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's a lot more positive that you can see in the future from China. Um, but there still is great threat, especially in, in the cyber realm. Um, and I think you very have to carefully watch what they do with their Navy and what their engagement looks like in uh, Africa and some other places. When does it overstep just sort of the economic engagement that they have now and start to turn into something that's more hegemonic. Uh, it's something to be watched, but not discounted. Uh, I'll just take a little cue from what Mike has left it uh, as. Uh, competition does not mean conflict. Competition can lead to cooperation. Uh, the US and Chinese economy are intertwined by $596 billion. Which other nation does this kind of dependency in the world exist? And I don't think the, the economic engagement will coerce cooperation. The second point is, if you look at the statistics of how the US education se sector is open to the world, the country where the maximum students are coming from is China. There has been an 18% increase in Chinese students coming to the United States. So I think it's better to be optimistic about it. And I'm quite sure for greater regional stability and greater global stability, uh, U.S.-China cooperation is, uh, you know, uh, is, is, going to be, uh, is going to stabilize the world order. And uh, cooperation with China has chances of reigning in uh, belligerent North Korea, reigning in Russia, so all the, those avenues are open. And the opportunity exists now. Less, and, less a formation of 
Russia, China, and certain other powers starts dominating the world order. Okay, G. Uh, Hsien. Okay, just say, I'm sorry. If we could, you know, th this can be a dialogue too, so it's not sort of one uh, one answer, one I mean, you can come back at us and disagree. So we, we'd like it to be a dialogue if, if anybody wants to add on or follow up or anything like that. So, I mean. Oh, um, I, well, I have, I had two questions, but Carrie took one of them. So I'm going to So we answered it pretty good, then. <laughs> do you have a follow-up? Um, actually, I do have a follow-up, but um, let me get to the first question first. Um, so the United States has a wide range of interests, you know, across the globe. And any kind of U.S. effort to, to intervene or get involved, um, you know, in order to deal with these threats and also protect U.S. interests will be quite costly, um, whether it's, you know, a military operation or, or otherwise. Um, it, what wasn't clear to me um, um, from your talks and uh, from the paper is that when you're dealing with a threat to national security, like where, where is your threshold, right? What are your criteria for U.S. involvement, yeah. right? Um, so do you suggest getting involved anywhere there is a threat, or do you prioritize uh, certain geographical areas or um, issues? So the, um, what, we, what we sort of went with, and uh, I think it, it, it's in the final document, but it's not, it may not be as clear as we'd hoped, is the, uh, there's a, remember this is a group document, 18 people wrote it, so there's, there's very variations of views. But generally there was a concern that, that there, there needed to be a, a, a fairly heavy demilitarization of American foreign policy. It is extremely expensive. So for example, right now, in effect, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you have an econ economy of force mission with three maneuver brigades and a couple division headquarters. There's 5,000 people in Afghanistan, not a big cost. The budget last year for OCO, the OCO budget for overseas contingency operations was $59 billion, which is more than the entire operating budget for the rest of the Army just for two economy of force missions. So using the military is very fast, very efficient, very expensive. So, and not always the most effective way of going after them. So we need to sort of demilitarize those things. The other piece we saw is that, you know, administrations need to be less quick. So you need to, if you're going to use it, you need to focus on interests that are truly vital. And so we tried to go back almost to the, the, the first Reagan national security strategy, um, and in there, it's a little bit muddled on sort of is prosperity a at what point is prosperity a vital interest? That uh, was kind of tied to oil and stuff. So we wanted sort of a without drawing a, a definite line in the sand, we thought there should be a much greater hardening of you know what if we're going to use hard power um, and not be and especially if we're going to be unilateral, it needs to be no kidding of vital interest to, to the nation. And we sort of define those in, in the document. Um, uh, those vital interests have gotten kind of fuzzy over the time. In many cases, they sort of bring in uh, value-laden democracy and stuff as a vital interest, which are we really going to go to, you know, then there becomes, there's, there's a lot of, you, you get to the point where there's a lot of uh, hypocrisy in American policy, where it's like, we're going to do this, but we'll help this country, but not that country. We'll, uh, you know. And we, we sort of saw that we needed to get away with that and be a little bit more pragmatic and clear with, with what our vital interests were. Um, and I, I, honestly, it's been a while since I've read the document. We try to, we try to very narrowly define them, which is actually, if you guys want to have a really difficult project, write down what vital national interests of the U.S. are, and try to be really precise. 
it is very difficult, especially in four phrases, to get those things down. Um, and what an interest even is, is it a condition, is it an action, is it a, you know, it's, it's a great work. So, uh, kind of without answering your question, I'll say that that's sort of the trend that we went into, we went along, is that we need to be demilitarized and then very focused on what, what is truly vital uh, to, the, to the country before you use military force. Now, you can get engaged in many other ways, at many other levels, uh, but, but really if you're talking military and unilateral, it's got to be hard by that. Can I get to my second Please. comment? Um, it's about I thought your... you said Carrie asked your second question. <laughs> um, it's about your comment on China. Um, I guess I'm still not persuaded um, about the, the chances of U.S.-China cooperation, right? I mean, yes, there are tens of thousands of Chinese students studying in the United States, but the thing is, the, most of them go back to China after graduate, right? And they, um, it, there's no guarantee that they will, they, I mean, even, even while they're here, like, they are not necessarily um, like, very open to, you know, the, the whole idea of, I don't know, democracy, like, freedom, and, and there's no guarantee that they will actually be, I don't know, more open to um, the idea of, you know, working with the United States and actually looking or seeing um, the United States as, you know, not as an enemy or a competitor, but as, as a partner. So I don't think that actually guarantees um, any increase um, or uptick in, in, uh, in, uh, in the chances of U.S.-China cooperation, and also North Korea, right? Um, yes, China m might have some leverage in influencing China or influencing Russia, but I think that, I mean... Uh, I've heard some Chinese diplomats, right, off the record, they stated that there's actually, like, nothing they can do about North Korea if they don't want to do it, right? They, if they don't want to give up nuclear weapons, there's really nothing much China can do. And um, I don't think we should be too optimistic about China's, I don't know, uh, leverage over any of these countries. So, um, you know, but I can't, I can't predict what's going to happen uh, tomorrow or what's, nobody can clairvoyance what is really the thing. But your, your lack of believing in me, I could see it in your neighbor's eyes also. <laughs> 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 uh, but you know, there are certain things, if you look at the way the Chinese are moving, the fact that so many students are coming to China, they go back. They carry back this culture back into China. That's where I disagree with you. <laughs> maybe, maybe. They carry back this culture. Today, the maximum Chinese investment in education is learning English language. There are special schools being opened to teach English language. They're hiring teachers from all over the world to teach English language. And when those teachers come, I was talking to a teacher the other day who was teaching English language in Beijing. So there is there is so much of desire to learn the English language, to ape the styles of the West. They listen to the same music. And gradually all these soft influences would change in attitude. You know, some of it some of it too is is I don't you gotta kinda look at a long and a short game. So, for example, 
the Silk Road project that they've had. I think it's a bigger threat to India than it is to us because of the link with Pakistan. But there, there's not really a threat to any vital interest in the U.S. between the, the Silk Road project. Um, I think China generally in their relations with the U.S. has been most concerned when we look at their things that impact their internal security. When we combat, co comment about Tiananmen, uh, when we talk about dissidents there, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's even written out now that says that the moves in the South China Sea are actually aimed at, you know, they're, they're low-cost ways of boosting internal support for Chinese nationalism. So, in many ways, Chinese actions are more blocking the development of a, of a broad world order. Um, you know, I think their, their movement now to have a, an alternate to the TPP is interesting. Um, but is it a threat to us? It, it, it only is if we let it be a threat and don't negotiate our own sort of version of that. Um, I tell you, the, the level of threat coming from China when you look at our interests and their interests compared to Russia is much less significant. But the level of participation actually has been much greater. I mean, Timor was something they approved of. They, they participated in the anti-piracy operations off the Somalia coast. So um, there is tremendous participation, especially at the economic level and the, the, the Twenty and G7 meeting things like that with China. So there's there is already tremendous participation, um, but I think we it, it is not something to be discounted. So just because we want to cooperate with another international power, um, you can't enact the strategy to successfully get rid of risk in a multipolar environment when you take the second largest economy in the world, potentially becoming the first, the largest population in the world, great man last, nuclear power. And, and frankly, now has economic ties all over the world, um, and decide you're going to confront that without starting another Cold War, which benefits, frankly, no one, especially when there's so much mutual interest. And so I think it's one of those, you, you need to carefully watch their intent. Um, the Chinese government does not believe in the same way of governing that we do. They're much focused on security. But frankly... Look at their country, how it's structured, the ethnic diversity. I mean, you can kind of understand why, why it exists like that. Um, you can confront, co-opt, work with, dialogue, um, partner with, without letting down your guard. Uh, and I think you've got to come to that balance because China is what it is, and it's not really uh, necessarily going to change based on how you, the U.S. acts. But we can't ameliorate and adjust how they operate in the world. Um, to get them to share burdens for the things that they benefit, to get them to um, work with international regimes when they also benefit from the same international regime. Um, because, frankly, they have threats on their borders from Russia and India <laughs> that uh, they probably would, would, would see benefit from uh, a stable international order also. So I don't discount the threat, but you have to deal with the threat. This goes back to the question that I asked about, which was, if it becomes a threat, if China is unwilling to cooperate in this international regime that you have laid out, what does that do to the national security strategy? It seems like the NSS here is predicated on the assumption that China will cooperate. So what happens if China does not? It becomes a carrot and stick project. So it's the same way. So this is sort of a long-run kind of thing. With, with Russia, you've got the, the same problem right now short term. And I think what we're advocating is a, is a carrot and stick, clear dialogue policy, which you have to go through multiple iterations of it. It's not, you know, you're going to write a magic strategy and say, I'm going to do it, it's going to work. 
But do you still see the prescriptions that you outlined here as being relevant? I think in the long run, yes. I mean, I, I, I do. Now, there's lots of people, so for example, a lot of this is based on Krasner. It's an, it's, it's an institutionalist regime-centered view of it. If, if you're not a regime-centered person, if you're a kind of Morgenthau power-based policy, you're, you're probably not going to go along with this. Um, but that's, that's sort of where we ended up. And, and a lot of it's what we have. So we have these institutions. We put a lot of investment in, in these institutions. China belongs to these institutions and signed up for them. Why would you not use those institutions and evolve them to something that's mutually beneficial? Dan, did you want to? Yeah, I just wanted to add, um, we have a professor here, Victoria Tinborg Wei, and she says when Chinese students come over here, they actually return back feeling greater love for their country and more antipathy towards the U.S. than before they came. And that's a very unhappy outcome from, I think, you know, this view of the world as being sharing and collaborative. If, in fact, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, that's not a very good thing. And also, you know, you skirt very close to excusing their actions in the islands by saying, oh, this is domestic politics and nationalism. But nationalism is a very dangerous thing. And there are conflicting claims, as you know, in the South China Sea. Not everybody's going to win these claims. Well, and it's, they're playing a long-term game, and we just met, we have a new Secretary of State who's planning to block their access. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're, we're all means. guessing what, the, what their end is. And so there's a lot of people who write that is, I mean, there's a lot of stuff written now that's out there that's, it is long-term, that it is internally focused. There's a lot that says it's the other way, that it's all about sim simply access. Um, and I think personally, right now, the policy that the U.S. have, which is try to get all the nations that surround them to negotiate as a block provides more leverage. But then again, even if you get Indonesia, Brunei, China, the Philippines, and Vietnam, and Vietnam, Malaysia linked in together, you still don't have enough leverage necessarily to make China move. So um, some of this kind of comes into is what, what's the what's the end state on this policy? What's the, the what's the um, time frame you're looking at? And so we, we actually wrote something that generally is longer in time frame than the NSS. A lot of the groups sort of believe that the way NSS is, is done now is frankly useless. It's written with a four-year outlook um, when really you should be doing sort of an NSC 68 sort of long-term policy that, that looks deep. Um, because, you know, anything that you're going to accomplish in the next two or three years is, is tiny in the, in the long span of time about how you develop relationships with, with China. I mean, you're not going to fix stuff and Barring, you know, something like Nixon's visit, you're, you're not going to change things over time. And, you know, we also discussed, one of the big things we discussed um, was, was the U.S. universities. You know, are we simply educating competitors? But what's the option is blocking people out from, you know, do we, do we gain or lose from bringing people in, understanding other cultures, learning to be empathetic, figuring out how they operate, and then and having that, uh, do, do we lose or gain from that, that exchange, which you can go back and forth on because it, it really turns into what, what, it's, what it, how do you value the participation versus the, the threat of the, the education of losing the, the people. And that, po and that points to, to a mindset, the urgency of now. We've all heard this before. The urgency of now is a mindset that we need to take care of things right now. Look how this is happening right now. But we need to have patience. We need to understand we're all in this together. And as we go forward, just like uh, Colonel Birmingham said, the NSS should be a document written for the next 20 years, not just, just not just now. Could, could I 
could, could I take the chair's prerogative and uh, uh, observe in, in the friendliest possible way that uh, I'm, I'm guessing when you guys started writing this, you expected along with 99.9% .9 of the rest of us that Hillary Clinton would be president of the United States. And an NSF That's fair. Uh, uh, with the, the catchphrase collaborative leadership for a multipolar world uh, would have fit uh, quite nicely, at least rhetorically, uh, with a Clinton II administration. But the truth of the matter is, is that Hillary Clinton was not elected. Um, in the world uh, beyond uh, what's unique about uh, the current administration, it is very different. Uh, the, the world of Bretton Woods, for example, uh, in which the United States thought that the preservation of an open, uh, liberal, global economic order was essential uh, to its national security is gone forever. Uh, one of the first executive orders that the current president signed uh, was to uh, back out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. One of our key NATO allies, uh, Great Britain, um, has withdrawn from the European Union, sort of one of the, uh, the main institutional projects of uh, post-Cold War Europe. Um, in a lot of places around the world, uh, the regimes that are coming to power uh, are animated uh, not by a commitment to liberal internationalism, uh, but to something very different. Um, and if that's true, how would you uh, recast a national security strategy for a world um, that has, in important ways, uh, backed away from some of the core premises that, uh, that you guys have uh, founded this document on? The, uh, the interesting thing is, as we developed this, the, the, the strategy had a different title which was actually selective primacy, uh, which we saw as a balance between collaborative leadership. Whereas you go into a multipolar world, um, you, you can't maintain dominance and hegemony everywhere. So you have to pick the institutions, you have to pick the, inst inst uh, the regimes and the times and the regions in the world where you're going to maintain American primacy uh, and focus on those and sort of attempt to co-op in the other areas, then you move into collaborative leadership. As the document developed, it's sort of most of the solutions we were finding were over sort of in the regime-centric area. I, I, I think that understanding of, of selective primary is, is very interesting because as you move into a multipolar world, costs go up with confrontation. Uh, there's a requirement for if you do not have institutional regimes, there's a requirement for balance of power. So you almost have to shift to that. I, you know, I've got similar concerns. I think the um, the phrase that came out from the inaugural speech, "America First," is very interesting. Um, is it a bumper sticker or is it policy? And if so, what does America first mean for collective security? Can you have collective security if you're saying America first? What does that say to the Baltics? Um, so the question going forward would be how much of this, what we're getting really is bumper sticker and how much of it is, is policy? Well, I don't think there's an answer yet. Well, if the, but if the president elects, one of his first executive orders is to pull out of uh, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Uh, that's not a bumper sticker. He's done something. 
Um, and he's, he's done something consequential. I think a lot of people, um, in, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, are uh, take, him, take him quite seriously in his uh, ambivalence uh, about the central role of NATO in terms of uh, American thinking about uh, European uh, security. Yeah, no, I think it's valid too. The, the thing that we see there is, is how much of that is a how much of that is a is a power move for negotiation? So, for example, Rumsfeld had the same issue with NATO; they they weren't paying their weight. So, how much of this is a power move, like a Twitter piece, to get NATO to start understanding you need to? Because, frankly, other than the Baltics and, and Poland and Greece and the UK, nobody in Central and, and Western Europe, well, not Portugal, is really paying their fair share to what they've actually agreed to. So, how do you create leverage? Fear is a great leverage, especially when you've got Russia sort of being resurgence. But but is it what we don't know is is this leverage in negotiating? I, I think it's going to fall. TPP. You know, I'm, the thing I'm surprised is that nobody has announced who the U.S. Trade Representative is going to be. How we are going to need yeah, it because we're not going to trade. Well, no, but he's announced that he's going to replace it with bilateral treaties. Um, so I don't think it's a it's a loss of trade, but it's a it's a it's a twinge. So I think we just have to wait and see because I don't think he really honestly I don't think he really knows what those bilateral relations are going to look like. And I think the other thing to watch with China is how does their, um, which is the regional cooperation. RDRC. Yeah, yeah. How does that move and, and do they move to block U.S. Uh, bilateral treaties through that body? Yeah. I think that'll be a big tell if, if they start to do that. Why don't we ask Brigadier Kapoor and Colonel Gomez um, to get in on this as well? Because it'd be, I, I'd be very interested um, you know, to uh, get their take on it. Cause, you know, I'm quite sure, uh, we, I'll definitely give you my opinion, and I'm sure Chatima's rules apply here. Uh, you know, but the issue is as far as the, there is a difference between an election manifesto and when you are the president yourself. Uh, certain things are played to the audience and give it three, four months, six months for this administration to get into the act. I'm quite sure some things would be different. Uh, I don't think uh, the way the TPP has gone about it became a little bit of a uh, emotional issue, you know, that since the TPP was had to be this thing, so he had to show some tangible results. But the way the TPP, the advantages that the United States has uh, in uh, in progressing a trans-Pacific partnership, because where does the money lie today? Where, is the, where are the jobs lying today? Where is the maximum GDP in the world lying today? It's in those areas. And if you have to counter uh, the regional uh, cooperation for economic partnership, which uh, China is, uh, uh, you know, is, uh, is under China's leadership, which has been this thing. In fact, on 12th of December, they signed the uh, initial documents for it. I'm quite sure this is going to inform the new administration they have to do something differently. They may not call it TPP. They may call it something else. They may change the name of it. They may, you know, give it a different complexion. But something would have to come. Because today the RCEP, the only country which is out of the RCEP is the United States. Every other country which should form part of the TPP is there in the RCEP also. So, is there, a, is there going to be a... I'm quite sure such uh, initial moves would get tempered. Such initial moves would have greater prudence to, you know, uh, give it a different name. After all, uh, there, there, there has been a big political uh, move. 
and I'm quite sure the things would uh, change for the better. Sir John? Yes. First of all, thank you very much for presenting a paper of national security neutrality. Um, I really like this idea, and I really agree that this concept of leadership. Um, I'm not necessarily a realist, but I just want to talk about the realist concerns. Um, Kerry pointed out that what if the United States want to cooperate and uh, China or Russia does not want to cooperate, then what happens? But my, not my concerns, really concerns are, let's say that um, China would be willing to cooperate. Russia also wants to cooperate. North Korea also wants to cooperate. Even if all the countries want to cooperate in the short Korean Moran, um, the realist concerns are, what if Russia gains more by the cooperation? What if China gains more by cooperation? So this kind of collaborative, collaborative leadership causes Russia to be the most powerful country, and maybe China the second most powerful country, and maybe the United States maybe fifth or sixth powerful country. This collaborative leadership may cause the kind of um, outcomes, international outcomes, the United States may not want to. So my question is, um, what would be your responses to this, um, the, the realist criticism that this collaborative leadership might cause more gains to those countries, the United States, other than the United States? Yeah, I, I think part of it is a, not a realist political science, but a pragmatic understanding that you're going to have a multipolar world. So unless you share authority in things like the IMF, the World Bank, and bodies like that, um, something else is going to form. Something else is going to happen. Um, you know, you always, you know, with the with the informal economic bodies, when you looked at the crisis in 2007, 2008, there was great cooperation because of the, the global threat. Um, I don't think there's a great necessary threat of the, the U.S. losing significantly. So, for example, with Russia. Russia has the same economy size as South Korea. So they're more of a security threat. Uh, you know, I don't fear a country that's that large but has the 11th largest economy, economy in the world. Uh, but they have nukes and they're aggressive and they have, a, you know, they have a large military. So you have to pay attention to them. So they're, they're consequential but only in... You know, frankly, in, 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 unless you're important, yeah, in, you know, Western Europe, and you have to use their natural gas, their consequence internationally is, is, is sort of decreased greatly. Now you can't tell them that because then they get all upset and they feel crazy and then they do things like invade Georgia. Um, but <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> My policy, it's a joke. Um, and so I, I, I think you, you know, you, you know, American policy has to be pragmatic. There are costs and benefits, but you also have to recognize that the world is changing, that, you know, we know China has grown. At some point, India is going to be a rival power. A billion people, democratic, same values. It's a good way to balance off China if you want to go balance the power. So you have to be clear-eyed about the world. It's really not a Pollyannish view, but you can gain from leading appropriately um, in, in certain areas. And you can create regimes, treaties, actions that are mutually beneficial. Um, and different people have different literal values. So, for example, he talked about the, the Caribbean um, catastrophic uh, risk insurance facility. 
uh, if you created something along the lines of, of pandemics, similar in West Africa, where those countries can then use to respond to pandemics. It's a massive amount of money for them, but it's very little for us. So who, who benefits more? We pay some money, but our value to that money is sort of lower. Um, but the value for those West African nations is huge if you, you can actually stand something like that and get it off the ground. So it, it's, a, it's a difficult question, but I, I, I agree with you that this is, you know, everybody sort of reads this document and I think it's very Pollyannish and we're all going to sing Kumbaya and hug and get along. No, it's, it's, it's designed to be very, very practical and that you cannot, the U.S. can no longer try to be a, a hegemon. You cannot confront every major global power that is going to develop. You have to get along with them. How do you get along with them? Well, maybe we should not be as exceptional. Maybe we should sort of follow the rules that we also espouse. Um, because then we've got a better chance of them doing it. And if they break those same rules, then we can get more of a coalition to force them and coerce them to, to not do that. So there, there's a lot of dynamics. Um, it's written very generally because I don't think you can plan out a specific strategy over a long period of time and like, this is exactly how we're going to do this and exactly how we're going to do it. But, you know, I agree with you. We need to be, the country needs to be clear-eyed about what they give up <laughs> before they give it up. But if we do it now, we have the leverage and the power to shape the institutions. Whereas 30 years from now, when it's much more multipolar, we'll have less ability to influence the situation. So moving in that direction now is, is better than waiting confronting, stopping, pretending that this future world where, where you know, this future multipolar world will never exist. That, that doesn't help us. You know, I tend to agree with you. Collaborative leadership can only be progressed forward if in certain areas you have to give up or let others also power, you know, take the lead. So you decide which are the areas which are important and which are not so important. So the not so important areas or which are which don't affect your vital areas, keep the influence there and give them a sense of participation in the others. If you want to have a very controversial discussion, so for example, now this is an amoral discussion. We're not looking at morals, principles, or anything else. Just hardcore interest. What is the loss to the United States of Russian involvement in Syria? Nothing. It's a net gain. It's a, it's a net gain. Yeah. Russia, Russia spends a lot of money. Syria has been a Russian ally since the late 50s, early 60s. I can't remember exactly. I think 58 was when they, when they transferred over. Um, we survived a long time with them in the Russian orbit. <laughs> um, now, there are huge moral implications. There are huge implications on Turkey. Uh, I don't think you ever want to stand up and look at the slaughter that's going on in Aleppo and other peoples and say, yeah, we, I want to. that's a good thing. But if you look just at that one piece of interest and, and, and loss and cost, we lose very little by Russia being engaged there. In fact, we get to gain a lot of intelligence, and they spend a lot of money. So uh, now that's very cold. And so, but I, but I think you're right. You, you do have to look at that cost-benefit. But there's things to be gained by giving up and letting other people leave. Sometimes, chief being is we're not writing the checks for it. Okay, I think we have time for uh, one more question, and the. Uh, I think my question's been sufficiently answered. Then we've got time for <laughs> one more question. <laughs> nature, nature of horses. There any, any undergrads have questions? Yes, all the ROTCs. You can ask about the military too and anything like that. You didn't have to be national security and international relations. 
I'll yield okay, to a numbers right if they've got one. Yeah. Um, no, the, the fiercely agile bureaucracies of universities notwithstanding, um, should the new administration try to reshape the international security order uh, radically in the next four years or eight years, how much can really get done with the tools at the, their disposal? How much is still set in stone? How much is, as far as like international treaties, relations, uh, security cooperation agreements, how much of that is in jeopardy, or is it even, you know, is it fat that could be trimmed as well? Um, any thoughts on that? We, uh, I think anything, any change in the international environment is great. Uh -huh. um, but there's actions that can be taken. And it'll be interesting to see um, from, from this perspective in this document, there's some concerns about where the president is going as far as national security. But it'll be interesting to see how, he, how effective this is. So say he actually becomes a very pragmatic president who may have bumper stickers but also then does things that are, are very positive. Uh, you, you may see somebody who can actually get some things done quicker. Um, now whether they're the right things, that's, that's the question. But you may see somebody more effective. Uh, something like changing the UN uh, and the bureaucracy. I think it would be absolutely glacial. Uh, and the problem there is right now nobody really wants a very effective group. It's kind of like Congress. We don't want it to be effective. There's, there's things in place. But I tell you, if the five Security Council powers all decided that they wanted to change the UN bureaucracy, it would change. Um, those five countries, and I'm sure there'd be a bunch more, more added on. Um, so a lot of it depends on, on, on what you want. And frankly, you know, internationally, nobody really wants that effective. But you can start to change norms. You can change individual treaties. You can start to move in certain directions. Um, and that's one of the reasons kind of why we don't really like the current national security strategy model is that it's, especially with, when it's public, and if you look at the last one, everything was in there from like nuclear strategy to Planned Parenthood had two mentions as a national security issue. Um, that's not really a good document then to sort of plan out a long-range way we look at how we adjust stuff. If you look at the you know, 68 we talk containment, that was not a one-president policy. That was long-term. Um, so I, personally, this is kind of not in the direction that you're going, but I think, of, you know, my druthers would be take the NSS and make it secret and write something that looks 30 years out. We do it with budgets. I, I don't know why we couldn't do it. Yeah, it'll change and get tweaked, but... Even when you line up all the NSSs over time, Reagan's to Clinton to Obama's and two Bushes, they're all pretty close. <laughs> Not much. There's little flavors and differences and some major policies like preemptive war that kind of go in there. But the interests don't really change. Um, and so I think the, the really key there is, is sort of like you said, is plan a long-term approach, look at the target, and then see how you start moving in little steps to get in that direction. Okay, uh, any other comments from the, the members of the panel? I think uh, it's been great and keep smiling and, uh, <laughs> and don't worry too much, things would uh, have uh, happened for the best. <laughs> so just so you guys know, when I was a cadet, we had the same discussion about China in 1993. And the question then though was, we know they're on the trajectory to be the world's one of the world's largest economies 20 years from now. Now they are. 
people were actually questioning it back then. So the question is, in 20 years, were you guys are going to have the same discussion about China? Because China's not going away. And you're probably going to have the same discussion about Russia. So um, get familiar with the issues, understand them deeply, because they're going to be with you for a long time. So. Okay, and on that note, it just uh, remains for me to uh, thank our guests for a terrific paper um, and an excellent discussion, and uh, glad to end on a uh, optimistic note, even if I don't think I'm optimistic. So please join me in a warm... If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.